Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, California State University Sacramento professor, Tom Craybacher, and longtime pulp collector, Walker Martin, discuss hard-boiled, at 100, the Don Everhard stories of Gordon Young. The talk was recorded on July 29, 2017, at Pulp Fest 2017, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Tom begins. Uh, good evening, everybody. One of the nice things about at least this period, I mean past several years and years to come, at Pulp Fest is that every year is a hundredth anniversary of something in the pulps. And one of the things we're going to argue, and you'll see why, is that in many ways we might consider 2017 the 100th anniversary of the emergence of hard-boiled detective fiction. It's usually credited as coming in the early 20s with Black Mask, but there are some precursors to Black Mask, and probably the most uh, important one, but maybe not widely recognized, is uh, Gordon Young's Don Everhard, uh, which is a serious character we're going to be talking about here. First, a little bit about Gordon Young. Gordon Young was one of the most prolific writers in, and one of the more popular writers in the pulp magazines during the first half of the 20th century up to the beginning of the Second World War. He uh, wrote for a wide range of magazines, published widely, but he's most closely associated with adventure where he was one of the most uh, prolific writers to fill the pages. I did a count once and actually ranked fifth behind Hugh Pendexter, W.C. Tuttle, Bill Adams, and Talbot Mundy in terms of just the number of magazine appearances. And to sort of appreciate where he was coming from with his stories, it's probably worthwhile to get a little sense of his background. He was born in 1886 in Richmond, Missouri, which is in Ray County in central Missouri, highly rural at the time. If this photo was taken in 2009, it's highly rural still today. His family was very peripatetic. It moved around a lot in the West, which was common in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, and he moved with it. Uh, in his teens, at the age of 15, he was working as a cowboy for Fred Harvey of Harvey House fame, Fred Harvey's XY Ranch in eastern Colorado. And this experience uh, was found or influenced the shape of a lot of his stories afterwards. In 1908, he enlists in the United States Marine Corps. And after some basic training, six months in Washington, D.C., he's sent to the Philippines in, um, in spring of 1909. Uh, he's stationed at the naval base there in Cavite, outside of Longapo, which I think is where Subic Bay eventually was established. And it was a time of the Moro Rebellion, which uh, U.S. troops were trying to put down. It was mainly Army troops. I tried to get the Marine Corps records as to what his unit was doing. 
but they're in the uh, National Archives in Washington and never been able to track him down. But he was likely on garrison duty. He was there for less than a year. Then he had another year and a half of shipboard duty on the USS uh, West Virginia, which was an armored cruiser, which uh, basically operated in the Pacific throughout this time. And this too influences story. Uh, in 1911, he's discharged from the Marine Corps. Uh, I think because there are gaps in the biography, he gets married in August of 1911, and he starts moving southwards along the West Coast. Uh, he later in that year is the telegraph editor, or what we call the wire service editor today, for the Stockton Evening Standard in Stockton, California. He publishes some offbeat poetry in the LA Times during that period. And by 1913, he's the literary editor of the Los Angeles Times. And he's basically in Los Angeles for the rest of his life. He's married, uh, wife Regina, daughter Lena, and uh, that's his base of operations from there on. And it's at that point he turns to writing. And we'll talk about the Don Everhart stories in a moment, but basically publishes a wide range of fiction, historical fiction, like Days of 49 about the California Gold Rush, published an adventure, had lots of footnotes with it, which was uncommon for pulp magazine stories, uh, testing to authenticity. The Iron Railroad, uh, about the building of the railroad across Kansas in the late 19th century, based on stories he heard when he was working as, uh, on the ranch in eastern Colorado. But the reason I became interested in uh, Gordon Young is, for me, because of his South Sea stories, uh, particularly those uh, uh, which featured a character named Hurricane Williams. And Walker and I both found that we had really a great love for these kinds of stories. So I'll let you take over at this point talk a bit about those. Okay. When Tom first uh, approached me about joining him for this discussion on uh, Gordon Young, I, you know, I was very happy to, to do this because in adventure, Gordon Young was one of the main writers and it's always been a favorite with me. And for decades I've been reading his stories. Uh, but to tell you the truth, I've always had a problem with the whole thing about Everhard being hard-boiled. Uh, I know that the title of this thing is Hard World at 100, but in my opinion, Everhard was not Hard World. And I, I went over my notes. Uh, uh, when I read a book or a pulp magazine, I, I make extensive notes, dates, titles, grades, mm -hmm. my comments, and I, I came up with all this stuff on uh, Gordon Young going back into the 70s, 80s, 90s. And my favorite character has always been Hurricane Williams. And uh, as Tom said, I also like uh, Days of 49, and I like her arc, The Avenger. Uh, I think it appeared in 1936 in Avenger mm -hmm. magazine. Uh, but Everhard, my problem with Everhard is that he had a habit of like talking to the reader. Let's, let's wait till we get to the Everhard part and then we can just focus on that. 
I want to say a few things about the Hurricane Williams stories and Hurricane yeah. the Avenger. Okay. Well, Hurricane Williams was, a, was a, if you want to talk about hard world, Hurricane Williams was definitely more hard world than ever hard. He, he uh, would sometimes get himself into trouble from, from what he was saying in the magazine. Uh, Adventure always had a policy of putting dashes into the curse words. Well, one time Hurricane Williams used the word horror in a story, and a, a, a lady wrote into Adventure saying she was a mother of teenage boys, and she was offended by the use of this word. And Hoffman, of course, you know, go back say, in, in the campfire section saying that this is, you know, how a sailor might speak and, and this is what the woman was. I mean, you know, he tried to, he really liked uh, Gordon Young a lot. And uh, he saw, at one point he even compared Gordon Young to Joseph Conrad. And I think that's a real stretch, but uh, certainly the Hurricane Williams stories were, were very uh, interesting stories and I liked them a lot. Um, he also did a series about a star in a cowboy called Red Clark, and there were about a dozen serials, and they all appeared in Short Story Magazine, uh, which was a competitor to Adventure. But most of his best work appeared in Adventure, and I would uh, definitely say that the Hurricane Williams character is the one to read if you want to read Gordon Young's best work. In the, uh, I, th I agree, and I think if you wanted a sorry, if you wanted a good example, the novel on the left, Hurricane Williams, which was its book title, but it was called The Storm Rovers in the it was an all-in-one issue uh, novel of adventure in adventure in uh, 1920, December 1920. Uh, it's just a classic example of a kind of hard-boiled uh, what would otherwise be romantic fiction. It's about a mutiny at sea, and this isn't any kind of clickety-clackety swords clashing uh, Earl Flynn Douglas Fairbanks uh, Jr. kind of mutiny. This is really brutal. This is really uh, hard, and characters die, and sometimes horribly. And it's dramatically placed because Williams is off stage during most of the novel and when he eventually appears after the mutiny it's you know, sort of electrifying the story. Uh, but uh, Walker brings up a point that a Williams or excuse me Young was uh, not just a prolific writer but he was also very literate and Hoffman the editor of Adventure greatly admired his work, uh, citing the fact that he was oftentimes quoted favorably by critics, because Hoffman argued that adventure fiction doesn't just have to be cheap, disposable stuff, but it could actually be respectful literature. But this uh, novel, Seabird of the Islands, represented a kind of breakpoint in Young's career. Uh, Young spent about uh, 10 months working on this novel because he wanted, he wanted to see it as a kind of breakthrough in the mainstream literature. Uh, and if you read it, the prose is polished. It's a much tight, more tightly structured story. But Hoffman rejected it. Other editors rejected it. He couldn't find a publisher for it in the US. Uh, eventually, it was published in Britain. And then an American publisher picked it up afterwards. But uh, Young, in a letter to a friend, remarked that, you know, basically uh, it gets uh, 
no better treatment in the markets than the kind of Pulp Fiction that he could turn out much more quickly, and essentially changed and uh, moved into that direction to writing uh, popular adventures fiction like Hurok the Avenger and a Western series, Red Clark. But even those, which were stories that Young tried to turn out quickly, uh, are first rate in both literarily and as well as the stories themselves. His peak probably was in 1941 when he broke into the Saturday Evening Post with Tall and Saddle. It was certainly his proudest accomplishment in terms of uh, what he would tell friends. And it was most popular as well in terms of sales because of the John Wayne movie that was made from it a few years later. It was one of Wayne's better westerns for RKO in the 40s, and it helped keep the book in print. But, and we're going to get to Everhard in just a minute now. But the thing is that Young is pretty much unknown today, except for the occasional pulp reprints, like uh, Ed Hulse's reprint of Savages, or some of the things that Brian Brown does with his uh, inexpensive BEV books. Uh, they're mostly gone. This ace double western from 1954 is the last time any of his books saw print in America by a, a major publisher. In the early 60s, a couple of Red Clark books were published in translation in the Netherlands, but pretty much that's it. But what we're here to talk about eventually, I knew we'd get there, is his series character, Don Everhard. Uh, Everhard is, just to give brief background about the character, and then we can talk a bit more about the stories, uh, a professional gambler, but he says at times he gambles on the streets as well as across the card table. Uh, he tends to be, uh, in many ways, uh, a cynic towards uh, authority, towards uh, women. He's very skeptical of women. He sees them as dangerous. Uh, and in many ways, he, he views himself as a dangerous individual, refers to himself as the most dangerous man in America. One point says he's killed more men than anybody in America. But at the same time, he's also a softy. Basically, when he encounters uh, young couples who are having trouble getting together, usually because uh, there's some bad guy putting pressure on them. Then he steps in in the classic romantic hearing, mold, hearing uh, mold. His first story was A Royal Flush of Hearts, which was Young's first published story in adventure, um, in the start of his literary career. And it's a relatively ordinary story. Um, then he followed that quickly with Bluff and a Little Luck and then Dangerous Men. He then introduces a series villain that persists for a couple of years, uh, for three novels, a guy named Antoine Gavareau. And these are appearing very quickly in adventure. Uh, Young is cranking this stuff out like crazy. But they also are proving popular with the readers. In, the July 1919 issue, as uh, Kurt Schumacher points out to me, uh, readers would write in and rate their stories. In the reader's poll for one issue, Young occupied the first and third positions. So uh, both for Don Everhart's story. Um, 
Don Everhard was a um, thing that Young turned back to over a course of 20 years. Uh, there are probably 30 stories published approximately, but again, very few make them in book form. Uh, the Crooked Shadows on the left is a soft cover published by Doubleday in 1924, clearly meant to be disposable reading, read and thrown away, it's very cheaply done. The Devil's Passport is, uh, this edition is from Triangle Press, which is a subsidiary of the Sundial Press, which was a subsidiary of Doubleday. And in many ways, it was sort of the bottom feeders of popular fiction. You couldn't buy it and not have the pages turn brown almost instantly. But on the other hand, if you want to get a Gordon Young novel on eBay, there are always dozens of copies of this. And was published in Britain under uh, a pseudonym, Paul Stewart, a couple of them were. Why Paul with two L's is not clear. Um, and uh, basically up to the end of the career, that uh, end of his career, that's what was being published. And this is where we can talk about uh, Hard Boiled and whether Everhart fits it. And I'll let you start with that. Okay. Uh, I've been reading Gordon Young for 40 years, I guess, and uh, when I think of Don Everhart, I don't think of him in terms of being a, a good, hard-boiled character. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, and so I went back over my notes of the different stories I've read over the years, and I, I'd like to quote a few things, like this is from the 1970s when I read Sorcery and Everhart, which was a four-part serial. Uh, uh, I read this story that, yeah, the 70s, and the, and the serial actually appeared in uh, 1921. Yeah. Uh, this, this is what I had to say back then. Uh, second ever hard story I've read, the other I never finished. Read this mainly because it came in first ahead of many fine stories and adventure. However, I had to force myself to continue to read this. Though good in spots, it was not outstanding. It was too slow, no dialogue, nothing much happened. It was all talk and no action. Young's South Sea tales are quite good, but his detective fiction appears to be mediocre. Everhart is supposed to be a gambler, but is really a sort of goody-goody Robin Hood. Uh, one unbelievable scene is where Everhart is allowed to keep his guns while going to see the villain. Well, that would never happen in real life. You know. Though I didn't particularly enjoy this, the whole series was very popular with the readers. So that's what I felt in the 1970s. So then in the 1980s, I read the first story that, that uh, Tom just mentioned, A Royal Flush of Hearts. Uh, I read it in 1986, and it's the first one appeared in February uh, uh, 1917. Uh, and as I say in these notes, it appears to be Gordon Young's first story in adventure and his first Everhard story also. And this Everhard is a crook who mainly makes his living cheating at poker. He's a crooked gambler with a soft spot to help people out. Definitely a sort of gentleman adventurer, but not a tough private eye. Now at the time, Ron Goulart contacted me in 1986. He was thinking of doing a book about Paul Private Eyes and he asked me what I thought about Everhard. And my, uh, we had quite a discussion about this, 
in my opinion, was that Everhart not be included in his book on the, on the Paul Private Eyes. Uh, at any rate, Goulart never did the book, so I don't know if I killed the book for that, that type of discussion or not. But uh, So I, I would have to say my stand now uh, is that Everhart was not that hard for and I started wondering why did he get this reputation of being Hardborough? Here's a hundred years, we're saying Don Everhard, uh, Hardborough at 100. Well, if you look at Carl John Daly, you see certain similarities with Gordon Young's Everhard character. For instance, Race Williams has a habit of stopping the story dead and talking directly to the reader. And uh, I think that Daly probably read uh, Gordon Young's stories uh, in the teens and had, it had a big influence on Daly. That's my opinion, uh, at least. Uh, and then, of course, now Daly has a reputation of beating Hammett to the whole uh, uh, subject of who wrote the first Hardborough story. I would say, I would not say Gordon Young. I would say it's still Daly, you know, wrote the first Hardborough story. But, of course, the big thing is that Hammett is like 10 out of 10 compared to Daly, he's like three out of 10, you know, I mean, Daly was a typical Paul Pack, you know, uh, some readers still like him, but uh, Hammett is the, the top of the cream, you know, he, he's really the best. Uh, Everhard, my opinion, he's not hard for him. Now, I will offer a somewhat contrarian view. Uh, if John Woolley were here, he was going to be on this panel originally as well. Uh, he would probably argue the, uh, the contrary view very dramatically because uh, when I passed some of the uh, Everhard stories on to him the other year, I asked him, you know, what do you think of these? And he came back and said, this is Carol John Daly. This is where Daly got a lot of the way to approach his type of story. Uh, it's first person. The character is talks directly to the audience. Now, Hammett and other hard-boiled writers are directed to the reader. Uh, steer away from that very quickly, and don't tell the reader all about themselves and their personal values and that. Uh, but it's clear that Daly is following in that same mode. There are other things. Uh, Everhard carries twin 45s in his raincoat pockets. Race Williams carries twin 45s. Uh, there's differences, though, big differences. First of all, Gordon Young is a much more literate and sophisticated writer, uh, whether you like the Everhard stories or not. Second is that Everhard himself is able to move in, in high society. As one critic, I think it was William F. Nolan, wrote it, that uh, Carol, Carol John Daly's characters tended to be more comfortable in speakeasies than society affairs and they tended to associate illiteracy with toughness. So there are big differences. But there seems to be, I, I guess there's no clear evidence that Daly ever read the Gordon Young stories, but I wouldn't be surprised to find out that that was the case. Uh, Robert Sampson, Bob Sampson, in one of his Yesterday's Faces books, I think it's volume two, The Solvers, uh, makes brief mention, maybe four or five pages, of Don Everhard as being 
in many ways the first hard-boiled writer, although the elements of what constituted sort of a hard-boiled template were just starting to take shape and a lot of things in it in the Everhart stories eventually would disappear, like the braggadocio, it was replaced with more laconic style in that. But Sampson thought that uh, you could make the case that Everhard was the, uh, one of the earliest hard-boiled writers. And he does reflect a big difference in style. Uh, prior to that time, mystery or crime fiction oftentimes was puzzle-solving ratiocination. Afterwards, it becomes more action-oriented. A lot of that is attributed to the influences of World War I. But to compare an Everhard story to one of the Jimmy Dale stories by Frank L. Packard, which I love, where in one of them, the character spends literally an entire chapter debating whether to use a gun or not when he's in a tight spot. You know, Race Williams and Don Everhard wouldn't have thought twice, nor would have the Continental Op for that matter. So I think, I think Walker has a point that there are a lot of differences between the two, and you can make a case that maybe this isn't uh, genuine hard-boiled, but I think the roots can be found at least lurking there, if not a direct connection of cause and effect. Uh, this is the second last slide. This is uh, a sketch of Gordon Young. I had a hard time finding photos of him when I was doing my work, and this was a sketch that accompanied a review of one of his books in the LA Times in the 1930s. Uh, if you are interested in the Everhard stories, well, I'm sorry, that wasn't supposed to be it. Uh, the last slide, all I need is, I'm not asking for the world. There we go. Uh, if you are interested in the Everhard stories, uh, George Vandenberg's Batter Silicon Dispatch, uh, Box publishers uh, are going to bring out the complete adventures of Don Everhard uh, sometime, hopefully in the near future. So you can read them and decide for yourself. But of course, we know what you all really want is for the auction to get started. So <laughs> shall we call it? Uh, I just want to mention one final thing. About 30 years ago, uh, two women approached uh, me at my table at the PulpCon and uh, they introduced themselves as uh, Gordon Young's daughter and granddaughter. And they had heard about the Pulp Con being in, I don't know, where was it, Dayton? That was Pulp, the one that was at the University of Dayton. Yeah, right, yeah. Dayton. And they wanted to know if I had any magazines with Gordon Young stories in them. And uh, as a matter of fact, I did have several magazines there. At the time in the 80s, which I think is when these two ladies uh, talked to me, uh, practically nobody was collecting adventure. Everything was science fiction and hero books. You know, it was really a dark period, you know. <laughs> because I was into the detective pulps, the western pulps, the adventure pulps. I was sick and tired of the whole hero pulp scene. And these two ladies were talking about Gordon Young, and I thought that was really great, you know. So I sold them some of the, some of my magazines that I had, were, and they were very happy to get them. And I thought that would be the end of it. Well, a couple months ago, I was on uh, uh, Cy Shanker's uh, Pulp Flakes blog, 
and he was talking about Gordon Young, and I just happened to mention how 30 years ago these two ladies had approached me about Gordon Young, their daughter and a granddaughter, and by golly, they're still alive because they, they must have Googled Gordon Young and came across uh, Cy Shanker's little article on Gordon Young, and so they left a comment saying that they remembered me and that they remembered the discussion and going to PulpCon. So I just thought that's kind of cool, and uh, it's still continuing because now they have this trunk, Gordon Young's trunk, coming up for auction, uh, I believe tonight. Yeah. And uh, uh, Tom's very interested in this trunk since he wrote a big article on, on Gordon Young for Blood and Thunder magazine. So it'd be interesting to see if Tom gets this trunk. And he lives in California, so he can just pick it up. Are you encouraging them to drive the price up? <laughs> now, j just the final note, an interesting thing about uh, the daughter and granddaughter, the daughter, I believe, is, has since died. She'd have been in her uh, late 80s by now. Uh, but the two Gordon Young's grandchildren are alive, and they were the ones that approached uh, Pulp Fest about uh, the trunk. And uh, Mike Chomka got their addresses. Now, when I was writing the article, I was hunting all over to try to find out where they are. And, People would say, oh, I think they're out in California. You can find them. Well, you know, there's 37 million people in California. And uh, I live in the Sacramento area, and I found out last Sunday that one of the grandchildren has been lurking in the Sacramento area all this time. So, anyway, we're going to try and make contact and uh, see what happens. But to the auction. Yep. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2017.